0: The scripture today is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water.
1: In 1905, Wales, England, there was a cry for revival. And the cry was simple, but profound. It was this, Lord, bend the church and save the people. Lord, bend the church and save the people. It was a small place amongst a small and unassuming group of people in a very rural place that revival broke out. Where there was a God consciousness that was awakened amongst the people of God. Indeed that prayer was being answered Lord bend the church. That God would so bend the hearts of his people that we As God's church, as God's children, our hearts would be moved towards him, would be bent towards him. Evan Roberts was the pastor. He was a former coal miner. He had no biblical education, 26 years old, but he was a young man who prayed for revival since he was 13. Calling out, God, would you save the people around me? Would you bring revival to this place. God gave them a vision for one hundred. They had a prayer meeting in the church. It was known as when this revival, this God consciousness was awakened. A young woman named Flory Evans stood and said with a soft but trembling voice, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. (laughs) And it was that moment that revival was made known in Wales, and God's work began to bring transformation. A journalist who was present at that prayer meeting, ironically enough, a journalist present at a prayer meeting. Here you go. The pathos and the passion of the avowal of that young girl acted like an electric shock upon the congregation. One after another rose and made the full surrender And the news spread like wildfire from place to place that revival had broken out and souls were being ingathered to the Lord. You know, if we think of revival or see revival, there's a sign that says revival, Sunday evening, 6 p.m., go here. But the thing of revival is you can't announce it. You can't predict it. You can't conjure it up in and of your own strength. There was no advertising in the newspaper. There was no marketing on Facebook or Instagram, not to mention Facebook or Instagram didn't exist back then. But even if there was, they couldn't predict it or cause this to take place. It was just an awakening of God's spirit and where God chose to bring an outpouring of an awakening towards him, he did it. And those people were privileged to see it. And within the course of the first two months, 70,000 were saved. 70,000. And in the course of the next two years, 100,000 came to know King Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that vision to Evan Roberts, 100,000, God honored that. There's a pastor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan from London, England. He was curious about what had taken place. Was it real? Is this truly a revival? Is this truly an outpouring of God's spirit and God's grace? He says this of the interaction. He says, if you and I could stand above Wales, looking at it, you would see fire breaking out here and there and yonder and somewhere else without any collusion or prearrangement It is a divine visitation from God. Let me say this reverently in which God is saying to us, see what I could do without the things you were depending on. See what I can do in answer to a praying people. See what I could do through the simplest who are ready to fall in line and depend wholly and absolutely upon me. Man, church. Church. If that could be our cry, Lord, bend the church. There has to be a rearrangement of the heart of God's people if there is going to be a salvation that comes as a result of it. We often pray, God, we wanted you to do some mighty things in our city and in our communities, but yet we're unwilling to allow God to work in those deep, dark places of our heart to bend our hearts towards his will. And this is what God did towards Jonah. Not perfectly. God did it perfectly, but Jonah wasn't bent perfectly. He wasn't finally bent towards the will of God. We see that in chapter four, he's a whiny, moany crybaby, still in need of God's grace, kind of like you and I, even when God works in our life in those miraculous ways. But God put Jonah under the forge of his hammer, and he shaped him when he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And it was that interaction, that encounter, that bent Jonah towards the Lord and brought revival to the people of Nineveh. I think if we had a G. Campbell Morgan that could report to us of the work in Nineveh, I saw fire breaking out over here and over there. And over yonder, I saw God's work in a divine visitation that was otherworldly. Man, how I longed for that in our city. How I longed for that in the city of Orlando. And maybe you're like me and you wake up in the morning and you say, Man, this city, this city is far from God. How could God possibly do a work in our city in our day and time? And then you see the story of Nineveh. And you say these people were far from God, even further than what we would de- describe as our city, as far from God. And yet God did it. And God used a rebel, Jonah, to reach rebels. Such a powerful story. So I want to look at this passage in five points. I want to see, first, the call of the Lord. Secondly, I want to see the obedience of Jonah. Third, I want us to see the wrath of God's message. Fourth, I want us to see the repentance of Nineveh. And fifth, I want us to see the immutability of God. Just threw that last one in there. We'll, we'll talk about that when, when it gets there. It makes me feel kind of smart when I use a word like that. Uh, so uh, let's start at Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Do you hear that? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. (laughs) Let me say it one more time if you haven't heard it already. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that so good? God didn't leave this at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, letting Jonah set sail into Tarshish so he could eat an all-you-can-eat buffet of paella and enjoy himself in Spain. No, God pursued after him, and God brought him to a place where he could hear him a second time. Don't you need a second chance? Don't I need a second chance? Don't we need a second chance? We worship a God of second chances, Right? He's a God of second chances, of third chances, of fifth chances, of 55th chances. I mean, this God is so good and so gracious that he doesn't lay over Jonah condemnation and say, hey, hey, I got a fish ready to swallow you again. You better listen up, boy. God doesn't do that. No, God doesn't remind him of his sin. He doesn't even remind him of his vow in which Jonah ca- tells him he's gonna give him the whole world if he just gets him out of the belly of the fish. He doesn't do that. God so graciously with his word again comes to Jonah a second time and he says, Jonah, calls him by name. I love that, that God's grace is so good, coming to Jonah a second time. I can't help but to think that some of us, we come into church and we're unable to hear the voice of God, because we're not looking for it. We think that somehow God's not paying attention to us. We read the story of Jonah and we think, man, that's for Jonah, but that's not for me. But listen to me, friends. God's love for his people goes so far, and it's not only for the elite. I mean, if case in point, Jonah was not an elite, Jonah was a rebel. And the accuser says to you, and the accuser says to me, no, no, there's no second chances for you. What you did was so bad, God's not going to call you. What you did was so wrong, what you did was horrible. And he tries to accuse you and say that you're unworthy and that there's no way God would possibly use you. But yet here you have the rebel Jonah who wouldn't even pray out to God to save his life when the storm came on the boat. But God causing salvation to come to Jonah by, sw- by allowing a fish to swallow him. In three days, three nights in the belly of that great fish, it brought to light Jonah's greatest need that Jonah needs God. Good news of God's calling is that rebels like you and me were called to reach rebels that are in places like Nineveh. Rebels like you and me are called to reach rebels in places like Nineveh. God also here calls Jonah right back to the place he was trying to avoid. (laughs) We don't like that part of the story. Jonah does not wanna go to Nineveh. And the three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish where Jonah kinda was able to cozy up to God again, wasn't God saying, all right, Jonah, I'm gonna let the whole Nineveh thing go. No, he didn't get to avoid the circumstance that God was calling him to. The same is true of our lives. God's calling us to these challenging circumstances because it's in those circumstances that we find God in them. When we avoid the hard circumstances of life, we're avoiding God. And so when we go through challenges in marriage, for example, we think that, man, if I just have a, a, a new spouse, then I'll have a new beginning. God does want you to have a new beginning, but it's not with a new spouse. It's with the same spouse, same spouse, new marriage. That's the grace of God. And so God doesn't call you to avoid the hardship, but he calls you to press in on the hardship that through those things you might depend upon him. Same thing is true with your kids, man. You have a hard time with your kids. You can't just send them off to boarding school. I tried already. My wife won't let me. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding, Carrie. Um, but... God calls us to press in through the difficulties. And those children are going to be your children for as long as you live and as long as they live. And so answering God's call means, yeah, I feel inadequate. I feel weak. I feel like I can't do it. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a friendship relationship that's becoming difficult. Maybe it's even in the church family. But God calls us to press in Upon those things. Let me ask you this. How many of you have run from God only to find that we're right back in the same circumstances we're trying to avoid? Anybody ever felt that way? I've tried to run from God, and here I am in the same circumstances I've been trying to avoid. Why does God do this? Rosemary Nixon, she's a scholar. She's brilliant. She says this, God calls us To go to places where we will be weak, vulnerable, and exposed to the cross, to death. For only then can we know the power of his resurrection. God calls us to those places of hardship, places of difficulty, places of having to even look death in the face. So that we might know the power of the resurrection God calls you to those places and not giving us an easy way out by pushing the easy button because the easy button won't show us the power of the resurrection. But it's only through those hardships, it's only through the hammer and the anvil of God's work that we're able to see the power of the resurrection so that we might become more like Christ. And we see this forged in Jonah as he's obedient. Again, like I said, not perfectly obedient, not finally obedient, but he is obedient. My kids, they played the would you rather game. Any ever played the would you rather game? It's a great car ride game when uh, you're bored. And so I have a fun time with it. The kids just are like, would you rather just be quiet? Okay. Um, But uh, let's pretend there's a would you rather game for Jonah. Would you rather go to church or to the beach? To church, that's what Jonah would say. Would you rather go to the movies or a prayer meeting? A a prayer meeting. Would you rather read the Bible or watch Netflix? Jonah Jonah would say, uh, read the Bible. Would you rather have a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or a Popeye's chicken sandwich? Uh, Jonah would say, I would much rather have a holy sanctified Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Um, in other words, Jonah, before he ran from God, he would be the quintessential Christian. I mean, the guy would be a leader in the church. He was a prophet, but he was running from God. Jonah had set in his life these certain boundaries. In these certain boundaries, he would say, God, I'll be obedient to you as long as you do what I tell you to do. And so Jonah had this kind of bargaining with God that was backwards. And so he could go to church, he could read the Bible, he could eat all the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches that he could, and, except on Sundays, can't get it on Sundays. But Jonah could do the right things in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God, he was far from God. Why? Because there are places in Jonah's life where he would not let God go. And so he refused to walk in obedience. Now here, Jonah is walking in obedience. There's a work of the Lord that causes Jonah to now arise and go. Instead of going to Tarshish, now Jonah is going to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So, Obedience for Jonah was not a walk in the park. In fact, uh, um, most people would say that we don't really know where the fish spit out Jonah or vomited out Jonah upon the shore uh, or dry land. But we do know that from Mosul, Iraq, to the closest location by the ocean, which is the, where modern-day Nineveh is, it's a 200-mile journey through the desert. That's 20 miles a day. It would take them 20 days to get there. It was a massively hard and difficult journey. And the city was exceedingly great. We see at the end of the chapter that there's over 120,000 people in Nona. I mean, that was a massive city, an ancient city. And it was three days journey in breadth, meaning that if, no, if Jonah was going to travel around the city with a message that God had called him to proclaim, it would have taken three full days to do so. And so obedience for Jonah was costly. Just like obedience to you and I is costly. I had a friend of mine years ago. Uh, we had a a group where we were trying to hold one another accountable. And this particular person uh, said he was struggling with obedience in a certain area. And in his struggling with obedience in a certain area, he said, you know what? I realized I'm getting legalistic about it. So if I'm getting legalistic about it, then I need to not worry about obeying because if I'm getting legalistic about it, that's sin. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. But the answer is not to start sinning so that you could stop sinning in a different direction. The answer to our struggles with obedience is to trust Christ, not do it on our own strength. Legalism says do it on your own strength. But the gospel of grace and repentance says trust Christ more, trust Christ more, trust Christ more. And that's the call of God even to Jonah is to trust him more. It's not try harder, it's not do better. It's look to the grace that's found only in God. Colossians 2.6 says, "'Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, "'so walk in him.'" How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By grace, by grace, through faith. It's not of your own doing so that no one should boast. How do we walk in Christ? By grace, through faith. That's obedience, walking in Christ by grace, through faith, relying upon God. And what was difficult for Jonah is that God had given him a message to preach to the Ninevites. Like I said earlier uh, in the series, the Ninevites were no easy to deal with people, especially for the Jews. They were the enemies of the Jews. They've done some horrible things to the Jews In fact, the Ninevites would be on par with Nazi Germany under the Third Reich. They were far, far, far from God. And Jonah being called to go to Nineveh to proclaim the message could have very well meant that Jonah would lose his life doing so. So trusting him was incredibly hard. I don't know about you, but trusting God isn't always easy. Trusting him is hard. And trusting in him with the message that God has called him to proclaim to the Ninevites is hard. I don't think very much has changed with that for our world today. Trusting God with the message that God has called us to proclaim today is hard. But the message that God had called Jonah to preach to the Ninevites was one of wrath. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Could you imagine that? I mean, these people would cut their enemies up and for sport show that no one should cross me. No one should do anything against the kingdom of Assyria. And then they would enslave the women and the children of their adversaries. And Jonah was called to say in 40 days... This city will be overthrown. And he's to walk about the city. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Continuing in that journey. Of course Jonah doubted God. I think when we're called to go to our neighbor and tell them the message of Jesus Christ, we would doubt God. We doubt God. And Jonah here is called to preach this message of wrath. It's interesting, though, because God finds Jonah in the middle of his calling because God was there long before Jonah got there. Tim Keller writes this about it. About the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts, and eclipses, all of which were seen as omens of far-off worse things to come. Some have argued this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. That God had been doing this work in the hearts of the people that were about to receive the message before the message got there so that they could receive the message. How many of you have found God in that way? That there's this work of God that he begins in you so that you would receive What he has to say to you because he takes you through these circumstances that make your heart open to his word. Sometimes the things are difficult. Sometimes they're not. But nonetheless, it's God preparing you, preparing your heart or tilling the soil of your heart to prepare for his work in your life, to bend your heart towards his. I've seen that in my life. And it's a gift of grace that God would bend the hearts of His, peop- uh, of his people so that people would be saved. And the message of wrath is one that today we often want to steer clear from. In fact, sometimes I've heard it said, I-, "I like the God of the New Testament better than the God of the Old Testament." <laughs> well, the, really, the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament is the same. Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God, the one who says that in spite of your sinfulness, I am going to pursue after you. In spite of the fact that you cannot keep this covenant, I'm going to uphold my part, but I'm also going to uphold your part. That was the promise of God to the people of Israel. And how would he do it? He would do it through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of a message of wrath is that the message of wrath is one that tells us that there's one who stands in substitution for the wrath that we deserve because he took on that sin, that shame, that guilt, that condemnation and the wrath of God on our behalf. And so we have to preach the message of the wrath of God. We have to. We have to tell sinners of the consequences of their sins. And I want to do so right now to you. That the consequences of sin, that the punishment of sin is hell. It's the wrath of God poured out everlasting forever like it never ends. And the gift of God, the grace of God, is that we would trust that there is one who bore the wrath in our place because he was perfect. He never sinned against the holy God and that his righteousness or everything right that he did or perfect that he did is imputed or given to us. And this is the message of mercy that we find even in the message that Jonah preaches. There's a key word there, overthrown. Overthrown could be like Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown, but overthrown could also mean overturned, that it would be turned upside down, and Nineveh surely was turned upside down. You saw the king got off of his throne, and he sat down in a pile of ashes with sackcloth on, that we would be able to say like Isaiah after seeing the holiness of God, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And this is the repentance of Nineveh, Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed him. That's a miracle. I mean, could you imagine if we read the history books one day of Orlando and the people of Orlando believed God? Wouldn't that be remarkable? Wouldn't that be absolutely amazing? Wouldn't that cause our hearts to stutter and flutter a bit to see that God's grace comes in such a God-conscious awareness that revival breaks out and the people of our city believe God? That we would believe them. We're going to uh, Turkey in October. We've got a team of five people. We're going to a place called Fethiye. In the the place that we're going, it's a 99% Muslim context. In the whole country of Turkey, there's only 1,750 or so evangelicals. Under 2,000 evangelicals. But yet we believe that God has called us to go to this place amongst these people with darkened eyes and darkened hearts so that they may know the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And they, like the people of Nineveh, might come to a place of repentance. I'm praying for that here. I'm praying for that there. I'm praying that for her brothers and sisters in Italy. I'm praying for that all around the world, that repentance would go over here and over there and over yonder, and this work of revival would break out. And we, from greatest to least, would put on sackcloth, and we would grieve our sin, and we would walk in repentance. I'm using this word repentance. Do we know what it means? Well, let me help you understand what repentance means. You've heard that word before. It's a church word. I don't know if you've ever heard it explained to you. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 87, says this Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin in apprehension of the mercy in Christ, doth, this is old, with grief grief, and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Ray Ortland, an author and pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, a man I have a lot of respect for, he gives us two observations from what I just read from that Westminster Shorter Catechism. He says, number one, repentance is not just turning from sin, Not even that primarily. Repentance is primarily turning to God. Moment by moment, because he has promised his mercy to the penitent. Repentance isn't just turning from sin, but it's turning to God. It's seeking from God what you've sought in sin. And it's realizing that running from God is walking in rebellion, but running to God is walking in repentance. Number two, Ray Ortland says, the outcome of repentant is not a stor- restored status quo, getting back to normal, getting back to where we were before we sinned, evading the consequences of sin. The outcome of true repentance is new obedience, unprecedented obedience, perhaps unheard of obedience, newness, of life. That's what repentance is. And when Nineveh repented, it's hard to believe that that took place. Now, let me address this just for a moment, and I'll do so briefly. A lot of the scholars and theologians kind of question this idea of repentance in the people of Nineveh, because later on, Nineveh comes and does some damage against Israel again, Later, Nineveh doesn't really show that they've been a repentant people. Actually, I'm sorry, this is not Nineveh, this is the Assyrians. And so how did repentance settle in the hearts of the people of Nineveh if that took place? If you follow the history of revival, let me tell you that the history of revival can, revival can often be very short. And it could be very broad. So you see a, a work of God over a short and concentrated period of time, but it being very vast in reaching lots of people. And sometimes people kind of get into that, that, that group of people that have been impacted by God, not genuinely, but from a distance. And later on will fall away from a work of God that truly settled But oftentimes, the work of God in repentance is not to create a massive swing of his grace and mercy that'll last forever. If that was true, we'd be in heaven right now. But it is to bring about a remnant or a small group of people who will proclaim God's name in the darkness of the place that they live. And so what happened, I believe in Nineveh, is that there was a work of revival that took place that planted a seed for God to continue to work in a powerful way to which we, I pray that generation after generation that took place then, we'll one day be saying, wow, they're coming to Christ in Mosul, Iraq. And that God's work back then reached Iraq in a powerful way today. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered him himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. You see that this repentance is thorough. The animals are even taking part of it, right? I mean, they're not to drink and they're not to eat. You know, it, we, we, we kind of think, wow, that's kind of weird, isn't it? But it's not actually weird. Ancient cultures would often do this to show or demonstrate grief. Animals, horses' manes would be shaved, for example, and Grief often is reflected in a fasting, and so here the animals were commanded, the people were commanded not even to feed or allow the animals to drink as a show of national grief that they had sinned against a holy God. And you hear the the king of Nineveh say it as it is, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Repentance means that we run to God because of his mercy. And it also means that business as usual is not business as usual and that our hearts change. See, this is what's really challenging about repentance is that God does want to transform us by his mercy. The question is for you and me, are we willing to be transformed? Are we willing to be transformed by God's mercy? Are we really willing to allow God to have His way in our hearts so that God would redeem and restore us and create what Ray Ortland says is this newness of life, this unheard of obedience? That's what it's causing me to ask of myself right now that I. Even as the pastor of this church, I've got those boundary markers in my life where I say to God, God, you can't go there. But I would be able to say, no, those are evil ways. And instead of trusting in my way or my plans or my heart, I'm trusting in the Lord. This is a hard thing to do in our world today. We live in a follow your heart world. (laughs) That's the cultural motto. Follow your heart. Where does it take us? Away from God. So listen, let me tell you something. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Follow the ways of Christ. The word of God is sure and secure, and it can be trusted if you follow your heart. You follow depravity because your heart needs redeemed. And This is God's mercy and God's grace unto us. And the last point is the immutability of God. It simply means this, God doesn't change. God doesn't change. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's word doesn't change. Listen, God's word reflects his nature and character and who he is, and his word doesn't change with the changingness of culture. Uh, changingness, I just made that word up on the fly. Give that credit to the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Spirit of God. No, God doesn't change. God doesn't work in accordance with our will, but he works in accordance with his will. And so as we have the word of God as the word of God, we know that it's not the word of God that should bend towards us, but we should bend towards it because God never changes. But you might think, well doesn't God change because here he relented he said he was going to do something which was pour out wrath upon Nineveh but he gave them grace we know that that's not true because God's intention whenever he tells of his wrath in such a way that people will listen. it so that they may know his mercy. And Jonah knew that about God when he wanted to see Nineveh restored and he, or destroyed. And he was mad at God because of it. He said, I knew you were like this God. I knew it. I knew you'd show them love because that's who you are. And that's who he is. God is loving. He is gracious, but he and his love doesn't bend towards us, but we must bend towards him. We're always called towards that. And in a follow your heart age, we are constantly trying to take the word of God and make it more and more look like me when we are called to be brought into conformity of King Jesus, because the God who never changes is calling us to himself. And it's a wonderful work when God moves in our hearts his presence in a powerful way in which we like Jonah are bent and subdued, listen to me, not perfectly, Not finally, but in repentance. Because if you've ever had to repent before, you know you have to do it again. Because God is constantly trying to redirect your heart towards him. You've had some boneheaded moments like Jonah. So have I where we've run from God and we're brought back to God and we run from him again. And then God continues to not remind us of our past failures or difficulties, but in his love and graciousness, he calls us to again to arise and go in his name. And this is the immutability of God. Hebrews says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your e- years have no end. The world continues to change. The world continues to be recreated in the image of the people that are in it. But yet, God, He stays the same. And he gives us this promise that the world will be created in, recreated in his image, in his likeness, in the new heavens and the new earth. And God is going to give us this beautiful picture of himself in ourselves in heaven. And those who are there now are completely redeemed. And here on earth, we await that glorious day when either Jesus comes back and takes us with him or he calls us home, but we will be remade in God's image perfectly as he created us to be. And then God's work will be so profound that we will never leave him nor forsake him because God's steadfast love is sure and his promises will endure and God keeps his word. He keeps his word. All of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Rosemary Nixon, who I quoted earlier, she says, if God were content to remain comfortably within the boundaries of his people, he created... boundaries of his people create for him, there would be no gospel. In Christ, the world sees a God who gets up and goes to meet his people. In other words, if God were content to remain in the way we comfortably want him to be, there would be no God who got up out of his throne and came down to meet us and find us in our sin to save us. But our God is a missionary God just like he called Jonah on a missionary journey, just like he calls us on the same things. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, the things that God had said are deserving of sin came down upon Christ like a magnifying glass, holding upon Christ all the wrath, all the shame of our sin, all the disobedience that we deserve punishment for, it all was placed upon Jesus, and he was punished in our place. And the wrath of God was satisfied, not by our righteousness, because we don't have it, but by Christ's righteousness. And so today, how can you repent? Where is God calling you to repent? Where is God calling you to run to him? Where is God calling you to a new obedience? Where is God calling you to put your faith and trust in Christ? Maybe today, this would be your first time doing so, and I want to ask that you would join in prayer. Maybe today would be, we'll continue to pray that that new obedience, that repentance would take deep root in our hearts. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your grace and mercy is afresh and anew, and that God, today we need you. So, Father, for the person who came here today that might have been awakened towards your work, Lord, I ask that you would so stir them, Lord, to by faith run to you and receive you through the work of Jesus Christ. That they would know, God, that you are the one who paid for their sin. And you are the one who gives them righteousness. And may an outpouring and an awakening of thanksgiving happen in their heart. And the person who is in this, like Jonah, a second time or a third time, Lord, that we would believe the same thing. That, Lord, you have paid for our sin. And in Christ, there's righteousness that awaits. And you gave it to us as a free gift, a gift of the gospel from heaven above. Because you weren't content to work under our circumstances and what we wanted comfortably. But, Lord, you moved by compassion and came down to us in Christ's name we pray amen would you stand as we worship